Welcome to the James Gomez podcast for my take on issues that affect you and me. And here we go. So welcome. Um, I'm James Gomez. I have an interest in how the internet affects governance and political participation and by extension how it affects the media. And for all of us uh, who have been reading news about the media, not just in Singapore, but around the region globally, we know the move towards technology and the use of technology platforms have also led to challenges of sustainability um, of media, especially mainstream media. So to set the context of um, the chat and discussion today, uh, you know, different, you know, colleagues, individuals, uh, commentators have come to it in different ways. Um, I would like to come to it uh, in the context of the need for independent institutions broadly, which means um, not just the media, um, the media is one, uh, at least that's how it's been articulated, as well as the need for other types of uh, independent institutions that, you know, offer a set of checks and balances, but also builds, you know, confidence and trust in the community. So with that, uh, I would like to um, uh, just remind us, uh, and, and I'm hoping um, there would be conversations, you know, out there uh, that when we look at the media, uh, sometimes in Singapore, and here I'm speaking primarily of the mainstream media, <coughs> It has always been about setting the agenda and shaping the narratives. Uh, so it's only, uh, you know, uh, relevant that I mentioned over the years, several decades, how, you know, opposition politicians have been framed in the mainstream media, the volume of coverage, uh, both for individuals, political parties, as well as during elections. Uh, more recently, um, how copious amounts of coverage was poured on to the situation in Oxley Rice um, uh, and, and in relation to Lee Sin Young's uh, legal efforts uh, over the will. Now, a quick reminder, uh, Reporters Without Borders ranked Singapore um, 116 in 2021, and the ranking has fluctuated between uh, 149 out of 180 to 160 out of 180 since 2013, um, with a general, you know, uh, slide towards declining uh, freedom of the press. Uh, of course, back home, um, you know, the, those in government uh, have uh, stated that um, the rankings are absurd and divorced of reality. Uh, uh, that is, um, you know, strange that Singapore's uh, media is, you know, portrayed in such a manner, or that, uh, you know, the Singapore state is a repressive one and controls the thoughts of people and very unfairly targets the press. So this is how um, those indexes um, on press freedoms are responded to, uh, but, but they're out there. Here, I, I want to... Um, draw a comparison uh, between um, the idea of freedom of expression. Now, freedom of expression broadly has three indicators, academic freedom, press freedom, as well as internet freedoms. 
And often there is a correlation between all these freedoms because these are known as fundamental freedoms and they are a cluster of rights. And uh, if one of the freedoms is affected, it uh, affects the ranking across the three. So that's something to keep in mind uh, when we talk about uh, the relevance of you know, press freedoms. Uh, I think it's also good to see within the scale of index where does uh, Singapore stand in terms of academic freedoms as well as internet freedoms. So, so I'll just park there. But of course, uh, the approach taken in, uh, has not only been on the notion of freedoms, uh, that has also been the notion of trust. So when we talk about notion of trust, uh, you can refer to takes a sample size of over a thousand persons and uh, there uh, the Singapore scores uh, strongly uh, well above the global rankings uh, the government as an institution is reported as being most trusted by the Singapore respondents 76% uh, compared to a global average of 70% and uh, in terms of media, of course, media ranks lower in terms of trust compared to the government at 62%, but still has seen, you know, over the years, a slight increase in trust. Uh, uh, so just to, to, to put it in numbers, uh, the global average is 56% trusted traditional media sources, whereas uh, in Singapore, that was placed at uh, 60%. So that's kind of trust. Uh, and, and finally, you know, 50% uh, of Singaporean respondents believe that most news organizations are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than informing the public. And 40%, 47% believe media is not doing well at all at being objective. So having said that, and I think it's also important to keep in mind the qualitative approach here. Um, the question is, in this you know, level of trust, both uh, especially in the media, uh, what is the trust in the reportage of Singapore politics, especially those that con con um, concerns you know, alternative voices, not just in terms of political parties, but also civil society, academics, and the whole genre out there. So uh, is that trust, you know, um, out there in terms of the reportage of the mainstream media on that component of uh, the Singapore landscape? Now, uh, the next is ownership. Now, uh, this is, again, public information. Uh, it's widely known that there is a two-step uh, two or two-tier uh, method of control. Um, SPH essentially is privately owned, inverted commas, by multiple sh shareholders, uh, both state and non-state linked institution. And so, uh, uh, in terms of management shares, uh, you know, um, the Great Eastern Life owns 22%, OCBC owns 16%, NTUC income owns 16%. Uh, Singapore Telecommunication owns 13%. Broad in all, you know, companies that are closely aligned uh, with the state and the elites. So here there's another idea to, to bring in mind um, in Singapore. Singapore has what is 
called a singular elite. That means there is no competition among the elites. They all come from the same crop, right? And they are, you know, dispersed over these institutions, both private and public. This is very different if you cross the border to Malaysia, where there is a system of competing elites because the, the country, the divisions, the resources is more varied. Similarly in Indonesia, similarly in the Philippines, similarly in Thailand. So you have a system of competing elites. So therefore, you, you know, you have a natural diversity and contestation over there. Uh, next, it's the financial health of uh, the Straits Times or Singapore Press Holdings. Um, just looking at some figures uh, from 2007 to right now. In 2007, the full, you know, year net profit uh, has been 506 million. And uh, last year's was minus 83 million. So if, if you uh, ever managed to pull the figures up, uh, you will see there has been a steady decline. There are some, you know, anomalies in numbers. Uh, there's the odd year where the figures show it's going up in 2010. Um, and then once again, 2013, that those, you know, slight bumps uh, have to be investigated or explained but generally sliding. Uh, uh, you see that it, uh, it slid from 506 million in 2007, and then uh, around uh, high 300s in 2011, just you know four years later. And then if you look at four years later, it's 320 million. And then if you look at four years later, it's 213 million, and then it's minus. From 19 to 20, it, uh, it fell, um, you know, nearly uh, 96, 97 million. Uh, that's quite a large gap. Now, in terms of, that's the overall business. But if you look at just in terms of uh, media, uh, just looking at last, uh, the media business, uh, 2019 uh, was 54.7 million. Uh, in 2020, it's minus 11.4 million. So you can see they, they, the profits went down incrementally over the last, you know, uh, 10 or 12 years. Uh, but it's this year, last year, 2020, that they've gone in the red, both as an overall business, uh, you know, in terms of full year net profit and also uh, negative in terms of full year media profit. Now, again, these are public figures uh, that we pulled out for the discussion, but are you know available um, out there for your own review. Now, well, we had just a few days ago the the SPH uh, re restructuring uh, to move from a not-for-profit uh, structure and also to you know separate it for the Singapore Press Holdings uh, as a whole. Uh, so what it means is um, the property business of the SPH, which is profitable, strong assets and all of that, that will go in one direction. And then uh, you have the media business that has been, you know, so contributing to, to the loss 
uh, and increase in operating costs uh, will then be, you know, transformed uh, into uh, not-for-profit uh, uh, company or organization. So in that regard, uh, uh, what we hear is that it's seeking government funds. And uh, uh, obviously this has been thought through some years in the making and uh, as with all, you know, control media and organized media output, then the minute the announcement is made, then you have a series of supporting uh, stuff uh, coming out in place of the moon. Now, we all have, you know, in the last day been bombarded by the Umbridge incident. I think the value of that incident is really put the spotlight on this and created conversation. So uh, the issue itself, you know, for me, it's just a manifestation of the culture and the reaction to uh, critical questioning and the rise for accountability. Something I think if you watch the Singapore uh, political scene, uh, you know, is cons consistently part of the landscape and also part of the elite political culture. So for me, that is, you know, uh, been discussed quite thoroughly, so I don't want to, you know, um, take up your valuable time uh, in repeating that, but uh, it's because of the public backlash, it required uh, political, you know, intervention, intervention in terms of rhetoric in saying that the question the reporter asked was a fair one. So uh, what's the debate? Right. So both uh, the, the announcement of the restructuring that, you know, those who've been watching the media would know the profit has been coming down and, you know, something needs to be done or what happens to uh, uh, something like this. And uh, two, uh, the umbrage incident just, you know, sparked uh, the discussion. So where's the debate? So what we hear is two things. Uh, we hear quality journalism, and then we hear editorial independence. Ordinarily, ordinarily, quality journalism would mean also independence, editorial independence. But here in the discussion, it seems that um, somehow, you know, editorial independence is not, you know, clearly discussed, but certainly quality journalism. Uh, so. So that's kind of the debate, uh, and uh, uh, we want. Uh, so I, I am trying to sort of, you know, say that both these concepts are not kind of uh, talking to a, a, each other because independent or editorial independence would require the government not to be involved. Uh, especially in terms of providing funds, especially if it's in terms of providing funds to uh, essentially a monopoly uh, of the media, right? So, so, to I think no one debates about the need for quality journalism, but the debate actually sends, uh, centers around editorial uh, independence. So, so then you know, um, a quick look. Often the Guardian, you know, throughout the world, not just in this case, 
you know, is put up as one example where you can receive uh, public funding. Uh, and, you know, if you read a garden article, you know, towards the end of the article, they will ask you, did you like uh, this piece? You know, uh, help us by making a donation. So, um, so this has been done. But how do you determine uh, independence, right? So ideas of a trust has been put forward. Uh, and here we have to ask, you know, is that the structure we want? Uh, would, is that the structure that will provide editorial independence? So I think that's where the debate needs to go and also whether ultimately it's about power, right? Who is in parliament is going to decide the way it's going. You can debate, you know, until kingdom come, but if you don't have the numbers when it comes to the vote and you will, you know, uh, listen to the debate, you will see the voluminous reportage that would emerge. And then, what is the voting, ultimately, right? And you will, you will already, you can already anticipate the argumentation that will be, you know, articulated in support of the vote that uh, realizes. In the meantime, in the next few days, in the run-up, what will happen is when there are discussions about uh, this issue, especially you know, the positions of editorial uh, independence, you will hear counter arguments about quality, about you know, uh, drawing parallels to uh, the the other types of you know formulations uh, that are pursued by uh, you know. The global example, the Guardian, and you know, to a lesser extent, Tampa Bay Times, owned by the Pointier Institute. So you you will hear, and then it's also a question of values. You know, you will see who is raising the argument, how are they socialized, uh, what is their uh, uh, you know political value, and what is it they are trying to push. So those are things that you can look out for. Some fun facts. Um, Mm, the SPH CEO salary is 1.35 million. Uh, is that what we want to pay with public money? That's a question. Uh, the Polyenta Institute, right? The CEO gets paid about you know 488,000. Uh, I assume that's US dollars, so bump it up to 600,000. So you know how much do you want to pay from public? Uh, uh, purses, right? SPH, uh, what will be the salary of the uh, the media, uh, the head? So, so those are things I think we we, we need to sort of unpack further. Um, I'm going to slowly uh, wrap up my comments so that we we have you know uh, a bit of time to chat. So, um, so obviously you know I have a view and. Uh, you know, not, you're not here just to hear me speak about, you know, uh, what's out there in the news. Um, I believe uh, with, with what has happened, <clears throat> it once again brought, brings to the focus the broad push for independent institutions, checks and balances. Uh, and what is the role of the media, the public media, right? And you will hear arguments for and against, of course, and uh, whether media should even play this role of an independent uh, 
checks and balances. So that's something, you know, uh, be quite clear. For me, I believe uh, any institution, commission, trust, or board uh, that acts as a gatekeeper, right, between the money and the editorial uh, team needs to be diverse. If it's full of cronies and cronies relative, you'll have a problem. It has to be diverse. It needs to include journalists, academics, uh, other representatives. I would say also civil society. So that's the, that, that's, that's the proof in the pudding. Next, I think public funds for media uh, should be broader. Uh, I think we need to know what we want. We want independent media. We also want a plural landscape because all media only can cover so much. So if we have a range of media, uh, then they can also develop niche reporting on different issues, whether it's climate issues, social issues, political issues, so on and so forth. They need resources and they need to be supported for a vibrant society, including smaller ones. So for me, I think I'd rather see a public media fund that can also include you know, private donations uh, with a diverse board, an equitable board that also provides funding for media projects, uh, for independent media. So in that sense, the broad push for, for you know, independence, diverse board composition, as well as supporting a plural and media landscape uh, would be served, including not just the big one, um, small. And if, if one thing that validates it, even if I go back to the trust barometer, is that you know Singaporeans tend to trust multiple sources of information. So it's good to you know use this opportunity uh, to uh, provide for that and to ensure you know that happens. And and, and finally, if we are paying salaries. Um, through public money, I think salaries need to be prudent and uh, should not be seen ex excessive. And uh, fair work, fair wage, uh, and that goes also paying independent media uh, decently so that they can also, uh, you know, enjoy um, normal living. So uh, I'll stop here and, and, and take that as my initial intervention and I'm happy to chat. So anyone wants to say anything, just put your hand up or let me know.